Welcome to Rector's Cupboard, a podcast for people who are interested in questions of culture and faith. We ask these questions from outside the institutional structures of religion. We're glad that you're listening and hope that you enjoy and benefit from the conversation. I've spoken with a lot of people lately who have expressed that they have just not been feeling very good. Sometimes their expression has been followed by some form or another of the words, it's just everything right now. This could mean COVID, it could mean gas prices or inflation, it could mean something familial or work-related. The malaise does seem to be more than circumstantial, as if it could just be fixed with a tweak of some kind. It's more that a way of seeing the world has been assaulted. This past couple of years, the virus, the polarization of opinion that has led to local discord in politics and families, the recent war in Europe, all of these things have apparently presented to us the possibility that maybe we're not supposed to feel good most of the time. Many people seem kind of emotionally frozen, unsure of what's next, thinking that it might not be good. There's a tidy religious way of seeing the world that says everything is going to be okay. For many people, given the relative lack of adversity in their lives, everything being okay has meant a particular standard of living somehow being ensured by God. Or people have carried the idea that for the most part, bad things won't happen to them. This admittedly childish way of thinking has meant that God being with us is a kind of assurance that we won't face loss or pain. Of course, most people in history have never been able to hold such misconceptions. But still, whenever a misconception is assaulted, it can make us feel upset, down. Not very good lately. It's tough to carry around a sense that things might not work out after all, that bad things might just happen to us, that we are not as advanced morally or spiritually as we had previously assumed. It's an important question in Christian spirituality. What does it mean that God is with us? There is a maturity in accepting that it does not necessarily mean that we'll get what we want or that our comfort will be assured. Some versions of Christian faith that are more marketing than theology aim to please by selling the false assurance that God's presence means nothing untoward will touch us, those who trust. Actual spirituality reminds us that if God is with us, then God is with us in the midst of trouble and sorrow and loss and grief. This is not always what we want to hear. We would often prefer a God who is only about preventing our discomfort. However, when we accept that God's presence is in the midst, it turns out that we can know true freedom, even hope. This approach allows us to accept that there are times, sometimes lengthy, when we just don't feel good. Sometimes not feeling good makes the most sense. This doesn't mean a failure of faith, even when we feel faithless. Years ago, I read the memoirs of writer and pastor Frederick Buechner. In one of the small volumes, he said the following, Listen to your life. See it for the fathomless mystery it is, in the boredom and pain of it no less than in the excitement and gladness. Touch, taste, smell your way to the holy and hidden heart of it, because in the last analysis all moments are key moments, and life itself is grace. Our guest today has a lot of insight 
into what it means to listen to your life, even as you seek to know something transcendent. Her memoir relates an actual life, one that includes great joy and love while also being shaped by trauma, sorrow, loss, and uncertainty. Monica Coleman's story presents us with a question. What does it mean that God is with us? Prayers and company to those who are listening who simply have not felt great lately. It's kind of the state of things, how many people feel. May you know the truth that God is with you, even in and particularly in the feelings of barrenness, grayness, and malaise. We hope that you will hear some things in this episode that are helpful. Today on Rector's Cupboard, we are very happy to welcome Dr. Monica A. Coleman, who is a professor of Africana Studies at the University of Delaware. Uh, She has spent over 10 years in graduate theological education at Claremont School of Theology and Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Answering her call to ministry at the age of 19, Dr. Coleman brings her experiences in evangelical Christianity, black church traditions, global ecumenical work, and indigenous spirituality to her discussions of religion. Uh, Dr. Coleman is the author or editor of six books and several articles that focus on the role of faith in addressing critical social and philosophical issues. Her memoir, Bipolar Faith, shares her lifelong dance with trauma and depression and how she discovers a new and liberating vision of God. Her book, Making a Way Out of No Way, is required reading at leading theological schools around the country. Dr. Coleman uh, co-hosted the web series, Octavia Tried to Tell Us, Parable for Today's Pandemic, and she speaks widely on mental wellness, navigating change, religious diversity, and religious responses to intimate partner violence. So thank you very much for joining us today, Dr. Coleman. Yeah, thank you. So good to speak with you and about this book that Allison and I have both read and mm-hmm. both thought was uh, fantastic. Yes. Um, called Bipolar Faith. Yes. We'll make sure people that was can the, find that. the one that we will primarily be focusing on today. Yeah. I was thinking, um, having read through it, of Frederick Buechner's comment, I'm sure he's quoting somebody else too, but that all theology is autobiographical. And your book is your story, a memoir, from childhood to adult. But it's also theological, your life, your life with God. I think also of Karl Barth saying that everyone has a theology, even worldviews and philosophies without reference to God are theologies, uh, attempts to explain higher things and meaning and purpose. Uh, Barth also said that the best theology would prove itself, that it wouldn't have to be argued or proclaimed. So my first question is just um, for you, Dr. Coleman, Monica, how does your story, as you sense it, read it. Uh, How does your story interact with theology, with understanding of God? Uh, Well, I'm glad to be here with you all. And it's funny that you mentioned the theology as autobiography, because I actually referenced that in my second book, Making Ah. a Way Out of (laughs) the Way. And so I was like, oh, we're right there, uh, (laughs) thinking the same thing. And, um, you know, I wasn't necessarily trying to say, oh, here's a theology, right? Um, That you can glean from my story necessarily, but this is my story. And I do believe the theology that I teach and that I study. Um, One reason I teach and study it is because I believe it, right? So of course it's going to seep out, but I also wanted to share, of course, the process and how I came there. So for me, I wanted to kind of combine Um, what people have called like memoirs of madness, right? Writing about Mm -hmm. mental health with a spiritual autobiography. 
among other things. I, I kind of see it as a blend of several genres. But so many books about mental health, no one's talking about religion, which I was like, is it's it amazing. really possible that people who yeah. write books are completely faithless? Like, surely nobody <laughs> here goes to church or synagogue or temple or something, yeah. but not the way they were written. And that's such an important part of my life and of the lives of many people I know and love that it just seemed like missing. That's, so I, yeah, I wanted to put so that together. So interesting that you mentioned that absence. Like one of my rules is I like a volunteer chaplain at local hospital and in, including like the psychiatric ward. And, and um, so there's just that the company between um, mental health, mental illness and spirituality is so close. Right. And the fact that you, you speak about this absence, but your, your book does that like mm -hmm. really, really well. Did you like, do you have any, um, kind of things that you've read in the past that informed this this approach? Have you seen this in other books or things where people are talking about their lives, but it becomes a theological consideration as well? Um, well, I mean, I guess I've read spiritual autobiographies, mm -hmm. right? I love Anne Lamott's work, for yeah. example. Mm -hmm. And she's an essayist, but, you know, so much of her work really are spiritual autobiography and essays, you know. If you've been through enough graduate school in religion, you've read, you know, Augustine's Confessions, yeah, right? Of course, of course. And, you know, and like everybody in between, right? So there are, I, I like to read, I like memoirs. Um, I like spiritual autobiographies. I worked with Sally McFay, who did a lot of work with spiritual mm -hmm. autobiographies oh, wow. in the early part of her career. Um, so in that sense, I, I knew it as a genre. I had kind of done some work with that even in undergrad. Um, looking at only I was looking at like 19th century spiritual autobiographies yeah. Yeah. so it's a it's a genre I'm interested in like how do people come to faith right what mm -hmm. is their story of their spirituality once I hit you know a serious crisis point in my own mental health I was reading books I wanted to read books by people who had survived mental health crises I was like is there another side of this and tell me how you got there and so I was just you know in the bookstore and I found a whole section right on um, books about, you know, depression or people's experiences with depression, schizophrenia, et cetera. And it was the depression books that interested me. And so I read almost all that were out there at the time. And one, they were all written by white people. And I was yeah. like, well, that's nice, but I'm not white. And my culture is a big part of my experience. Mm -hmm. And except for one book was written by um, an African immigrant. Mm -hmm. And we're both black, but we have very different cultural experiences because I am a descendant of the US slavery system and she is not, right? And so I felt like, oh, I, I want a book that that kind of feels a little like my experience. And I was kind of shocked there wasn't one out there and that had religion in it. Hmm. So I had, I was reading them and I was like, how is it all these people who are working with their therapists and you know having jobs and wrestling with family and stuff and not religious, right? <laughs> so it just seemed, odd to me that out of the what 10 12 15 books I was reading not one person um, mentioned you know how they wrestle with their own spirituality and their own faith in the midst of living with mental health challenges did you come to any kind of um anticipation of, of why that is why that absence is there what do you think that because it can't be entirely that people are like irreligious or haven't thought of those things 
I, I guess it's just who ends up getting book contracts, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know how it, or what they think will that, sell, right. or what they think yeah. people want to hear. That, um, they, you, know. you know, I mean, and there was kind of this genre of like, you know, pray to Jesus they make it all better books, uh, but I don't yeah. want to those, those because, yeah, right? We're not, we're not counting those. To make it worse, right? yeah. <laughs> so you either had this super churchy, like we all know that it doesn't work that way, books, right? Mm-hmm. Or you had these books that were, you know, really well written, you know, great pieces of literature, but just didn't have that dimension in it. No, I think, I think that your book, um, touches on what, what I think is a very valuable kind of, um, a voice is, is to go, no, I have, I have faith, I have struggles and, you know, praying to Jesus did not fix that. Um, and I found, uh, towards the end of, of, of your book, you talk about, um, your, your diagnosis of, of bipolar two and, um, I got the sense as a reader that it was almost this moment of kind of relief for you to go like that. It seemed like you finally kind of understood yourself and there was framework that you're like, Oh my goodness. Okay. And like when you were looking back, did you have that sense of that terminology, that framework kind of, you could understand like yourself as a child and stuff much better through that? Um, You know, it was helpful. Right. And I say there are ways in which, the diagnosis is helpful in ways in which, of course, it's a little useless, mm-hmm. right? It's helpful because I was like, oh, I'm not the only person who had these experiences. Yeah. Because people talk about bipolar one or what was known then as manic depression. Um, but I was like, that's not quite my experience. And I knew about depression. And I was like, well, that's a lot of my experience, but there's this other part too. And so when I read about bipolar two, the number two, um, I was like, oh, wow, this is me. And not just me, but other people. Like, it just sounds like me. Hmm. So it made me feel like, well, if this isn't a book, then it's not just Monica, but there are <laughs> a whole bunch of people, <laughs> wherever they are, who, who know and understand this experience. It made me think, oh, it's going to be easier for me to deal with doctors because they'll mm-hmm. kind of have some sense of what I'm living with and they'll know some sense in how to treat me and how to help me or maybe how not to hurt me at the very least, like what would be helpful, what would not be helpful. And it did help me to make sense of my past. It helped me to, I had really felt like the part of me that was happy um, was fake. Like I was really a sad person all the time and I was faking happiness when I needed to. And it helped me to be like, no, no, I, I'm both. Right. Like I I can both be this happy and productive person and be sometimes a sad person. And it's not neither one of those are untrue. Right. Mm -hmm. They're both part of who I am. And for me, that really did help me to feel more grounded and to have a better perspective on the life I had lived before that point. I, I like how early in the book you speak about like this middle space, this neutral space. And I think some of it for in my reading relates to what you were just saying that what parts of, of you were kind of fake and yet what other people s- saw you as how, how you had to present yourself for some reason to, you know, have that sense to other people. And there's so many, there's so many sentences and lines that stand mm, out yes. early on in your growing up, you have a sentence that says, fear is like a river that runs beneath the earth. Around that same time, I think it's just before it, you talk about how death stalked you. Um, these things are, obviously, there's a depth and a kind of sorrow, suffering in there. How, how is that fear um, a reference to some of the things in your childhood, some of the loss that you experienced? 
I mean, I guess there were a lot of reasons I had fear, you know, which I tried to touch on in the book in terms of, you know, there was kind of fear in my household. And I also had this sense that, you know, it wasn't, nobody wanted you to be sad. Like, that's not how you want to lead out in the world, right? That, that happiness is what people wanted, right? So that I felt that my sadness had to be a secret. It had to be something I didn't tell people about, hmm. right? And so I think once you have this silence, it creates shame and stigma, right? And so, and of course, that's hard to live with and hard to live under, no matter what age you are, but particularly if you're just a, you know, young person trying to figure out who you are. Were you like, so this part that you presented to others, like the pretense of happiness or something, how did you get to know that, okay, you were doing that for other people, but were you doing that to some degree for yourself as well? Did it take a while to kind of separate those things? Probably yes, yes, and yes, right? (laughs) Um, In some way, yes, for other people, in some ways for myself. And then some of it was actually genuine, right? Some of it is like, oh, sometimes you are happy. You're hanging out with your girlfriends and having a good time. Sense of humor. Yeah, all that. Yeah, Yeah, you know, like it's not all fake. And, you know, I think some of this also is really tied to African-American culture, which I talk about in terms of this very classic poem by Paul Lawrence Dunbar that says, we wear the mask, Mm -hmm. right? It is such an integral part in many ways of survival for African-Americans and persons of African descent, probably many minoritized persons, um, to realize that you cannot or you should not for safety reasons, um, show a wider white world who you really are, right? So part of that mask is something that we're taught, sometimes not even overtly or in like verbal language, but you're quickly taught this is how you operate in the world, right? There are safe spaces, there are unsafe spaces. There are spaces where they, you know, you can show who you really are at home or in like company or maybe at church, but out in that world and their world, you have to put that mask on because that's what's going to protect you. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I feel like we, we've said before, like we, we very much enjoyed the book and like I, I read like large chunks of it at a time. It was, it was just so, it was written so well. And I, I love the relationships that you describe. Like the, I mean, they're not characters cause they're real people. Um, they're just, they're so vivid. They like come alive off the page. And I think that one of the ones that, that really stands out is, is the character, sorry, the person of, of your grandmother. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, could you tell us a bit about, kind of, and, and you kind of hold your grandmother up with, with God, and you talk about at a time that you prayed to your grandma because you couldn't pray to God, and um, tell us a little bit about kind of those those relationships that you had at that time. Um, I'm glad you noticed that, how essential relationships are, because that was really, I mean, I believe, you know, both philosophically and in my own experience, that relationships are what hold us all together, right? Mm-hmm. And that would ultimately kind of save us as the relationships we have with each other, with ourselves, with the world, with the earth, right? Um, and that that's how we know ourselves as we are in relationship with others. And I had this maternal grandmother who was just that spoiling grandmother. My mom would say, I don't know who she is because that's not who my mom was, right? You know, one of her favorite expressions is, let the baby have what she wants, you know? <laughs> and so, you know, she we, you know, she had us in our dresses and, you know, whatever little toy we wanted that our parents wouldn't get. She was like that kind of grandmother. So who doesn't love that, right? Exactly. But <laughs> she was also this like Southern churchy woman, right? Who you know, took me and my other cousins to church and she was churchy. So we were there all day, (laughs) all day, Saturday, all day, Sunday.
day. It just, it, that's what it was. It wasn't something that was optional. Um, it just was. And so I was always kind of hanging around and, you know, sometimes you're little and you can fall asleep and then you get older and you have to pay attention. And some old lady has candy that only old ladies have in their purse, right? That they yeah. give to little kids yeah. and, um, <laughs> you know, all these really great memories of, of this church. And part of it for me is that part of my faith is just very early and primal, right? It's got sounds and feels to it. I wasn't sitting around thinking about theology or doctrine. Yeah. I was, you yeah. know, with my grandma and I got so much of African-American culture that in that experience too, without really knowing it. Right. Um, and so I had this very close association of her with Christianity because she has such a strong faith. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't like she was the only one, right? I mean, my parents actually grew up in the same church together. That's how they met. Okay. So all of my grandparents went to the same church, but it was this grandmother I was really hanging out with, right? Oh. This is the one who, you know, was active in the church and in church leadership, late church leadership, and, you know, who I was kind of always kind of tugging on her skirt. And so, and she was the one who died first, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I think my grandfather died actually, well, my paternal grandfather died first, but I was not as close to him. And so, and because she died of cancer, it was a death we saw, right? A death we saw coming. It was, it was slowish. And it was very devastating for me because I felt like I lost this person who would do anything for me and would get anything for me and just believed the best things yeah. about me. And I was like, if that's gone and you know, I don't know if I thought people should live forever or what, but I was like, no, not yet. It's right. too soon. It's not supposed to happen this way. And I was like, I don't know about you, God, you know, I don't know if this is how, I don't know if we're cool right now, you know? So I don't know about you, God, but I know about grandma, like her, I know you, I have some questions about God, but grandma, I know. And so, There's something you know, there. that's, yes. who, that's who I'm going to deal with. And you know, I also was trying to kind of tap into in the writing of that, not that I knew this as a young person, you know, the way in which we connect to our ancestors mm-hmm. to also connect to God, right? And that is very integral to many indigenous traditions. Um, but I wasn't sitting around thinking about how do I practice indigenous traditions? I was just like, <laughs> I don't know about God. I'm not feeling good about you. I have questions, but grandma, I know. So <laughs> I'm going to talk to grandma and We'll get back to you later, guys. That's, I like that. I like that. Yeah. There's a lot there in terms of things we're going to talk about in a few minutes too. The, you know, how we know God by, by knowing others, right? That church, church also, and you mentioned some of it in that, in your last response there, church figures prominently in, in your memoir. Mm-hmm. Um, so in your life. Uh, and uh, it's, it seems like kind of an obvious answer, I think, but uh, but for me, I, I don't feel it that way. Like when I, there's a lot of pastors in your book, there's a lot of churches, there's a lot of services from, you know, you're growing up to, so you mentioned growing up, going to church was like brushing your teeth, right? That's just something you did. And then, but then when you're at Harvard, when you're in ministry and preaching in other universities and, and then when you form a ministry or when a ministry is formed out of your pain, um, that church is a big part. So the question that could have an obvious answer, but what, what, what have you felt is the impact of church on your understanding of self and God? Because that's not always like you think, well, the church just introduced me to God, but there seemed to be more to it that you're getting to in the book than that. Yeah. Um, in fact, thinking of how Allison talked about characters, you know, church is probably a character, uh-huh. right, in the book. 
uh, and one that, that changes as well, at least as it relates to me. You know, so in many ways, like I said, like you said, it's it's a given, right? It's just always there in my life until I become old enough to have some ideas and thoughts about it for myself. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. church was also very social for me as a teenager, right? This is where my friends were, you know, we were in youth group, drama ministry, all the things. Again, not thinking <laughs> theologically, that's not how my church was oriented. Mm-hmm. It was like, this is where the party's at, right? And it was good, clean fun. I was allowed to go, right? Yes. Like I might not be allowed to date, but I can go to church and hang out with my friends, right? So it was very social for me as well. And I think that's still part of it, right? It's community, it's fellowship. Mm-hmm. It is, you know, the ways in which social activism happens mm-hmm. in many African-American communities. Sure. Um, and so then being called into ministry, you see kind of like behind the curtain, right? And and see more about how church operates and get to make some decisions for myself. Like, right, you're on your own. It's like, do I want to go to church? Which church do I want to go to? What do I like about a church? What feels important to me, right? Making those decisions. And so in many ways, God was mediated through church. Mm -hmm. And then a time comes when I'm not cool with church. And I'm still trying to figure out God. And I realize, like, no, I have this relationship with God that is not necessarily connected to church, mm-hmm. right? That those are different things. Yeah. Um, that I can, I have, I can have communal worship experiences in church, mm-hmm. but church is full of people who are fallible and sometimes do terrible, toxic, dysfunctional, unhelpful things yeah. <laughs> at times, right? Because that's what people do. Um, and so I was like, oh, I, there are other ways that I can experience God and know God and feel close to God. Or there are times that I'm going to church because it's my job. Yeah, <laughs> it's something yes. I'm supposed to do. <laughs> yeah. But me and God are not cool, right? They're just, yeah. they're separate. And um, it's nice when they align. And there are definitely seasons of life when they align, but they don't always align. That's, and that's, that's fine. And that's good. And that's okay. And I think what's nice is that you can still go to church while you're not sure about God. And in its best iteration, the church holds you while you figure that out. Mm, that's beautiful. That's Yeah, no, I think that that is spot on. I, I love the concept of having, like understanding the church as less individualistic, less just about what I do in it, but going like being able to hold on to other people in one sense holding faith for you and, and you do speak about that in your book about how there there was kind of like this rote kind of like you're reciting liturgy or or that sort of thing and you're kind of hoping that it'll keep you connected and you're just banking on the faith of other people to kind of pull you through um I I, I really appreciated how you kind of talked about the the humanness of of church in that um you talk about some of when when you are trying to receive some some help after um, after the 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 intimate like partner violence that you had the the, the rape that you that you ex- um, suffered um, the the incredibly terrible responses from several of the churches that you went to and 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 you didn't demonize the church in doing you that but it. you just described it and like, it, it made me so viscerally angry um, and and you you do mention it in your book where you just go like is this what ministers tell people? And I'm like, oh, like it It must be what some tell people. Well, it certainly was what what you were told. Um, How do you kind of hold those tensions of having like those, those delineations between somebody who is giving you at best unhelpful 
kind of advice at, at worst incredibly damaging um and and still kind of wanting to engage like it seems like you have this like radical kind of hope that the church can be better than what you've experienced it as is that is that true i think it's so also i kept going to church in part because it's just what i did yeah. right it's just part like that's what you do you get up on sunday you go to church and because um I didn't have a plan B in mean, like, some ah. practical way. I was in grad school trained to be a minister. I had to have an internship. I had to show up somewhere because I didn't have another plan. <laughs> like there was not a, um, well, if this doesn't work out, I hadn't figured that out. Mm. So I was like, well, we got to make this plan work somehow. <laughs> so some of it was a little bit of practicality. Yeah. Um, but it was, I think, deep within me, maybe, you know, not a belief in the institution, but a belief in who we can be as people of God. Amen. Yeah. And so now after I've done a lot of work in that arena, I don't believe that 99% of clergy are not sitting around thinking, how can I hurt people who come yes. to me? Yeah. Right. But are either wounded in those areas themselves and speaking from their own woundedness, hmm. or they just don't think about it, just don't know, don't realize that what they're saying is so hurtful that's, to others. Yeah. Really and so I've made a lot of my work and passion about educating others and educating mm. clergy about how they can be more supportive in those contexts. Well, thank mm. you for yes. that. <laughs> how has that been received when, when you've been teaching? Have you met people who have been defensive about, oh, well, you know, I need to, you know, tell them the truth that they need to do this and they need to do this? Or have people generally been actually receptive and gone, oh, I had no idea what I was doing was damaging? I would say the majority are receptive. I remember years ago giving a talk at a divinity school in North Carolina and someone came up to me and said, oh my God, I just said that to my oh. daughter, this mm. experience she had. And I can't believe I said the wrong thing. And I was like, well, you weren't trying to be hurtful. So maybe now go back and apologize <laughs> for yeah. what you said and maybe say this instead. Right. So I, I definitely have had that experience. And I was like, oh, wow, that must have that sucked. You shouldn't say that. But I knew people said that. Right. Yeah. So most of the time it wasn't like, here's how you can be like the best advocate. But it's like, can you not say these three things um, that people tend to say, like just damage control? Well, it, it's like a freedom you're offering to the people in those places as well. Those places of leadership or authority or mm -hmm. it, it's not a, a condemnation. It's 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 that call to to do better. Right. And that. For me, and I think for I would assume all readers, um, the the devastating concept in the book um, comes obviously the assault that Allison mentioned, but I also think about you speaking about your dad, um, particularly early in the book, um, and in relation to your dad, your mom tells him about some mental health stuff that you've been experiencing mental illness stuff, and he gets upset, seemingly more upset that you hadn't told him than about actually what you were dealing with, and then proceeds to, as I read it, kind of gaslight you and tell you that you don't really hate him when, when you've expressed some some anger and frustration, um, but, they, oh, you just hate the rules, and then he forces you to say that you love him. Then later in the book, with this terrible trauma, um, this sentence again stands out to me. I think you write it twice, actually, in there. Um, when you say um, about this other person, you say, I loved him and he raped me. Um, I think one of the reasons it's devastating to me is obviously what you experienced and suffered as a person. That's the biggest. But in terms of the theological 
um, questions then how so many views of God are given to this kind of distance and cold indifference, like a disconnected sense of God's holiness, that he is kind of coercing us or that God is coercing us into this love. Um, how did you interact with those? Because I, I think you brought that beautifully out in the book, but but the stories are so um, stark and and honest and hard that sometimes it it's it wouldn't necessarily be easy to get to those theological concepts. How did that play for you? Well, I mean, in some sense, I really wanted to say, I wanted to talk about trauma, right? And I wanted to talk about the things that shape our lives, that cultivate fear, that make, you know, trust and safety hard, right? And that mental health in general is not like just the commercials where like, hey, take a pill, it's great, it'll be fine, right? (laughs) Like that might, that can help, but it's not that simple, right? I really wanted to say like, these things are complex. Theologically, you know, I think about the amazing work that feminist theologians have done around the critique of atonement theology mm-hmm. and connecting that with atonement theology in particular with a reification, right, of God as father as um, and, and uh, intimate partner violence, right, child abuse and domestic violence. And those are incredibly great critiques. I don't think they're reaches just based on the metaphor of father-son language, but there are parts of the Christian tradition that are okay connecting love and violence. Mm -hmm. And that is, I mean, the very, very big parts. I mean, like your average Easter song, right? You were just talking about it. Right, love and violence. But there are traditions in Christianity that do not. Right. There are. And as you know, as a a child, as an advocate, as a parent, I think it's incredibly important that love and violence are not do not go together. Right. That that violence is generally speaking an unmitigated evil is, you know, like in every context, not okay, Right. And that is someone if there is violence and an expression of love, then it's not love. And that's not actually what love is. Um, but if you are in a tradition where it's preached like Jesus loved you so much that here's the violence, right? Yeah. That, which is very, very common yeah. yes. way of thinking of what's important about Jesus and salvation. And so it took these theologians to come in who are really aware of and connected to uh, and advocates around domestic violence to be like, no, people, that's not okay. Um, but there have been, you know, for well over 2000 years, other ways yeah. of thinking about Jesus and Jesus' importance that do not evolve atonement, that are not about um, violence and love being necessary for humanity's well-being. Mm-hmm. That's, um, and I could see how that would uh, inform and shape much of the education that you do. Um, so it, it, and it moves us to uh, the concept of process theology the like god <laughs> just god, got a great big smile <laughs> yeah, on her god, face <laughs> god being with god being with us in the change um we don't know much about about process theology we've done a little bit of reading and little, and and your book opens it up um but obviously got the sense that this has to do with god and change maybe god changing tell us about process theology um very happy to because <laughs> it's something i love um, I think of it this way. Uh, I'll have two ways of explaining it. For the eggheads out there, right? Philosopher, Western philosophers have always sat around trying to figure out what is the most fundamental thing in the world, right? Is it mass? Is it 
fire? Is it wind or spirit? Right? What is the thing that we know is kind of a building block of how we understand the world? And that's changed over time. But there have always been some who said change. If you can take anything to the bank, it's that things are going to change. Mm. And we get there through philosophy. We might get there through science. We might get there through a narrative. But there have long been, you know, people who are like, you know, I think, I think the thing that we know is always going to happen is that things are going to change. So in process, we say that everything that happens in the world is a result of three things. Um, what you have to work with, right, your past, what's possible in your context, and then what you do with it. And for those of us who are theists, we believe that what's possible comes from God, right? That God is the one who offers us possibilities. Like you might say newness, right? Novelty. Um, behold, I do a new thing. That's a God thing, right? <laughs> that the fact that we don't are not determined to always live out our past over and over again, that intervention is God. For those of us who are theists think that. But then we always have agency, right? What are you going to do with it? right? <laughs> when you have these things to work with, what, what do we decide, sometimes very unconsciously, and sometimes more consciously to do with those things. And that happens over and over and over and over again. And that is just as true of us in the world as it is of God. Mm -hmm. So God is also kind of what, what happens is God is God is taking in what the world has given God, like, what do you give me to work with? <laughs> right? What might be possible? And then God's way of calling us, right? That's what God's going to do with it. How is God going to call us in each of these situations, given what there is to work with and what might be possible. Mm -hmm. And so that means we're always changing because this happens moment by moment by moment. And then God is always changing. And of course, this sounds really hard for well, classical thinkers. That would be threatening to some people, right? <laughs> yeah. Right. Like, what do you mean God changes? No, we change. God doesn't change, right? right. God is the opposite Same of today, us. yesterday, are, and forever. Right. Yeah. Exactly. We're fallible. We're sinful. We're this. But God is perfect. And God is unchanging. And God is. But that's only if you think change is bad. Right? We don't think change is bad. Change just is. It's morally neutral. What you do with that change has different implications in the world that you might then attach a kind of morality or ethics to. But if you think change is bad, then you would say, oh, we've changed, but God doesn't change. Right. Um, because you want to give God the perfect qualities. And we want to say we have the imperfect or the bad qualities, but we don't think of it that way in process. We're like, everything changes. It just, it just is. And if you live long enough, it kind of feels that way, right? Yeah. That things are always changing. It's not what it used to be. I'm not who I was 10 minutes ago because I learned something new. I'm not who I was last year. Sometimes that's great. Sometimes that sucks. But we do know that, that because we have experiences and because we're moving into each new moment, that we grow and we change. In, the, in your book, you speak about, um, I'm thinking of two particular points of, of Christian scripture, um, the 55th Psalm. So the David and Ahithophel Psalm when Ahithophel betrays David and, and your personal kind of connection to, to that. And then there's this kind of um, moment of awakening, I guess, as, as, I, as I was reading it, I, I felt when you, you say you had been reading Jeremiah and you say, it occurred to me, God cried when I cried. This was this was some new God. Uh, is as you describe process theology, is is that change you speak about for us and for God? Is that a way in which God is present with us as well? In well, another yeah, another principle of process theology is universal incarnation, right? That God is in everyone. God is in everything, right? And so 
you know, I grew up, uh, I went to Catholic school growing up, right? Where it's like the wow. incarnation, right? Like mm-hmm. the immaculate right. conception this is one time when God is in humanity and we call that Jesus. But in process, we're like, no, God is in everything, right? It's a kind of panentheism to use our fancy theological words, um, which just means God's in everything. And so if God is really in me, then God can't leave me, right? It just, it just doesn't work that way. Um, and I'm in God, so I can't leave God, whether I like it, whether I talk about it, whether I feel good about it. But for us, that's just kind of how it is. And so when I said, well, maybe it's not that God is outside somewhere going, oh, look at poor Monica, look what happened to her. And yeah. I can't do anything about it, which is how it felt to me, right? right? Like I was like, if you're a God who intervenes and saves people and you didn't save me, then yeah. what's up with that? Right. I'm like, that's not okay. And then I was like, oh, maybe that's not what's happening. Maybe it's that God is crying with me. Mm-hmm. Maybe that God is right here with me, holding me. And that really was a radical shift for me yeah. before I even had language or principles of process theology. And I think you can get there outside of process theology, right. but it was a way of me really understanding God's eminence within me and with me. Right. So that's more than sentiment or like theology, ideology that if you if you are experiencing that, that God is crying with you, along with you, or um, I would anticipate that that has profound effect upon some of these mental health struggles you speak about. Very much so. Right. Because I think a lot of what happens for those of us who have mental health challenges is there's a kind of interiority to it, right? There's a sense in which you, no one else knows exactly how mm. you feel. And that's what makes you feel lonely and like yeah. crappy about it. And, you know, you can call your therapist at four o'clock in the afternoon, but not at two o'clock in the morning. Um, and so you're like, who, who understands me at two o'clock in the morning? And I believe God does, right? To me, this is way more exciting than God loving me, is that God knows me from the inside out. Um, so for me, my, you know, to again, use our theological language, you know, my, what's really cool about God is God's epistemology, right? Is that God knows me from the inside out. And there are plenty of people who love me, who don't know me from the inside yeah. out. And their love is genuine. But I'm like, I don't care if you love me. Do you get me? <laughs> do you so do good. you know me inside? Like that's some cool shit. Yeah. Can I say that? Yes, yeah. you can. Like that's what I need my God to do. Yeah. <laughs> right? mm, I also love and and correct me if I'm if I'm steering a little bit off. The it would seem that the the concept also doesn't give you an option for for theodicy. Like God isn't punishing you. God isn't like causing stuff. And I and I know from for myself there have been times where you know I'm I'm kind of done with with the the bullshit of like everything happens for a reason. And so like pain or suffering that I have is is to You'll teach me a lesson. lesson. Oh my goodness, yeah. no, can't do that. Yeah. And it it wouldn't seem to me that that process theology puts up with that at all. Correct. And that's a big part of what draws (laughs) me to process. Right. And again, for years, you know, Christian thinkers have tried to figure out the problem of evil and suffering. Right. Those are some of the ideas. Maybe God's punishing us. Maybe God is trying to teach us something. And, you know, you see this way back in the first century. These are not new ideas, but they're still crappy ideas. Yeah. Yeah. They're still not great. And it's only a problem if you believe that, you know, you have a a classically omnipotent God, right? In the way which Greeks have thought about God. Um, 
And if you don't have a classically omnipotent God, it's not a problem, right? So because process theology has a God that is very dynamic and symbiotic with the world, not far removed in a, you know, way outside of here kind of way, because the relationship with God isn't one of reward and punishment, right? Like you might see with some models of God, you don't even have that problem, right? So why did, why do we suffer? Why does evil happen? It happens, right? Because it it just happens. It's just part of the world. Uh, We have some complex ways of thinking about it that I'm happy to share if you want to go down that rabbit hole. (laughs) Clearly, you know, it really is, you know, other people can do things that create pain in your life and God can call them all day and night not to do it, but we all have agency, right? We know this, like we are not coerced into anything. We're not coerced into answering yes to a call. We see this all throughout our Hebrew prophets. God calls and, you know, Jonah's like, I'd rather not. (laughs) God calls Moses, but my brother speaks better than me, right? Like we know that God doesn't make us do anything. And so we, those of us who are interested, right, in, in heeding God's call, we're trying to do that. But even at our best, we don't, right? And some people aren't even interested, not even trying. That's not their thing. They're just operating out of other impulses like selfishness or greed or power or all types of things. Well, isn't that and things they do can hurt others? And that must be kind of terrifying to people who've had a concept of God that is, you know, omnipotence in the classical understanding or the, that things could just work out terribly and, and it's yeah, hard for it, them it, to I, it's, well, people need a more comforting view that a classically comforting view or something sorry I think for some people it is comforting until it isn't right mm-hmm. <laughs> like it it works until it doesn't work yeah. and um and what many people do is they try to mold their experiences yeah. into that theology yes. and they kind of in some ways lie to themselves about what they know and what they experience because they're so desperate to fit it into the only story they've heard. Yeah. Or As the compared only story to thinking like, I know I'm not crazy. I know this is what happened. So I must have to change. There must be something wrong with what I'm thinking about God. I must need another model. I must need another way. Well, and, it, and what you're describing there, I, these, these attempts to kind of force these things, we could see how those would produce a, a psychosis or various forms of psychosis, right? That you, if, if, if your experience is so apart from, your explanation of the world and of God, then it's going to have all these kinds of, of terrible effects. Um, one of the things I'm interested in, unhappy evangelical, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Right. (laughs) Well, I was thinking that the, in, in this terrible shadow of the trauma, you were a minister at the time, like working, serving. That was, that struck me like writing sermons or do, you know, and, and you have this question in the book around that time, but, how does being a minister affect my prayer life? And then you have a note that you determined that all you had to do was talk about God, not talk to God. Um, Tell us a bit about those kind of being a minister and these things. Fake it till you make it, right? Um, I mean, for what it's worth, I wasn't writing new sermons. I was like preaching sermons I had written but not preached, right? Oh, that's Um, right. I don't know that I I was in me necessarily to write a whole sermon at that season. But I did have, I had written sermons I had not preached. So I just preached those, right? Um, But yeah, I was like, again, it's like, well, this is my job. This is what I'm supposed Mm. to do. I don't have a plan B. Um, so we're going to have to figure out how to do this, can but no one was, can people see mm-hmm. it at the time? Like, do people, do some notice? people can sense that, right. Or no, I don't know. Nobody, <laughs> no, nobody came up to you and said, you, you, you seem like you're, you're in pain, pain or something like that. No, wow. 
Um, no. I mean, so if someone noticed it, they didn't say anything, right? Um, that or I was really good at faking it. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I mean, or it's not like I'm the pastor, right? So I'm not the person at center stage, okay. you know, who's, you know, doing pieces here and there. So you don't, I'm not trying to oh, hold it together yeah. for like two hours. It's like yeah. hold it together for like 10 minutes, right? Oh, or okay. I'm preaching like 20 minutes, but not, you know, all week leading yeah. a congregation. Um, but it's still not ideal. But I think, you know, the truth of the matter is having been clergy long enough, having known clergy and religious leaders is that it's, it happens. Like it is a yeah. season of life, of one spiritual journey where you're like, I don't know about you, God, you're doubting God, you're not happy, you lose faith. Like it is a season. And I think that part of the challenge, and I think part of what's wrong with many spiritual teachings is that we teach that like it is a fallibility, like that's a problem, like that's something that shouldn't happen as compared to it is part of the spiritual journey. Losing faith is part of the spiritual journey. If you're on the path, if you're in this journey, you will lose faith and probably more than once. And that's when you have other people hold it for you, or you hold on to the parts you do know until you can figure out the parts you don't. Yeah. I find I find in in your book you have this this absolutely beautiful concept of of humanity in in both for in for yourself in that you allow yourself to have failures and have things that you don't excel at, as well as for people that have hurt you. You you. It, it appeared in in the book that they you didn't flatten them into these two dimensional villains. Um, mm, there was still this like this humanization, um, and I I found that very hopeful <laughs> um, and and very beautiful um, that you allowed yourself to be human and you allowed other people to be human and you didn't let your own kind of faults or failures completely define you or, or other people. Um, is that, does that stem from kind of your, your understanding this, this process theology, or is that coming from somewhere else? Um, I don't know that it's necessarily a tenant of process. So uh, maybe it's just my own are. personality, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you know, in, or just maybe the maturity of being a little bit away from things. Right. Because in my head, like there are good guys and bad guys, like don't get it twisted. Like you're <laughs> on my side or you are not on my side. Right. And as I really thought about, you know, writing this and, the, and these are public parts of my life, life parts of my life I was making public. Yeah. I was like, you know, let me think about how, how I'm going to share this. And it was in that writing process that I was like, you know, there aren't any heroes. There aren't any villains. Hmm. You know, um, we're all just kind of out here trying, you know, yeah, uh, including yeah. me, right? Because I might be someone's hero, but I might be someone's villain too, Yeah. Um, you know, in the flattened version of themselves. But no, we're just all out here trying and struggling and growing and sometimes getting it right and sometimes getting it wrong. Well, I, I back up, Allison, your your um, expression of that. I thought that was really well done. And, and then, because also that asks more of the reader. Mm -hmm. it, it, um, it humanizes in a way the reader as well to in, in how we evaluate people in our think about people in our own lives. And, but speaking about things that you found difficult, um, <laughs> rain comes up uh, <laughs> a few times in your book. We're sitting here in Vancouver and it's raining today. Surprise, surprise. Yes, shocking. Um, Reasons and, I don't live in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a, but by the end, don't, not to give away the, there's, you begin speaking about, or you speak about rebirths as well. And there's a little bit of hopefulness, even in terms of the rain. Like we want to get you here to Vancouver and <laughs> get you here, maybe on a sunny stretch, but, uh, um, 
How, how do some of those just practical things play in, in this journey, like these symbols, these kinds of things that, because I know in mental health and mental illness and even my own experience, uh, I think there's a time when you talk about, I think it was laughing or something, um, you through one of your um, mental health struggles, and there was a time when you either laughed or sang or something again, it resonated with me because in one time when I was struggling with depression, a song came into my head for the first time in weeks, and I was like, maybe I'm not feeling as terrible as I thought, but these kinds of symbols, the rain being one of them, um, how do you experience things differently and how does that give hope? Like this used to, this used to signal despair, but now it's something different. You know, I think for me, this is the gospel, right? I'll come at it this way. Um, you know, cause I clearly just threw out that whole cross violence thing a couple minutes ago, right? <laughs> so what's the big deal about Jesus then, right? To me, it's the resurrection. It's that we die and we rise again, that the end is not the end, that we think it's the end, but it's not, yeah. that there's still God, there's still more, there's still life. And I think I, I try to get at these various symbols, but to me, it's like we lose, but then we find it again, yeah. right? We're scared and then we can find safety again. We're through with God and then, okay, wait, maybe it, we can find something else here. Um, to me, that's good news because that's not where we automatically go. <laughs> we automatically go like the end is the end and it sucks, <laughs> right? And the God intervention is no, it's not the end. That there is new life, that there is rebirth. And that's the thing I think is the good news. That's what I like to preach. That's what I've experienced. And that's what I hold on to when I feel like I'm at the end because it's not like it doesn't happen again, right? Yeah. Like I'm not out of the school. Well, that's it. Like even right? the, book end, the book ends and you're like, I guess she's good. She's okay now. <laughs> like, no. Yeah. I, mean, yeah. right? I mean, sometimes, yeah. but, you know, like anyone else, there's still grief. There's still loss. There's still all of the vicissitudes of mm -hmm. life. And so I have to remember, like, I feel like I'm at the end, but it's not the end. And so for me, that's a fact. And because I think of it as a fact, I know it's coming, even when I'm not feeling. I know you're mm -hmm. probably thinking of that uh, Julian of Norwich quote. I think it's changing a bit, but when she said the end is good, and if it's not, good, if it's, it's not good, it's not, not the, the end. end, right? Mm -hmm. That there's this that it comes up to. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think you've you've answered kind of our our stereotypical last question of what gives you hope right now. But I mean, if you'd like to elaborate any more on that, I mean, I think you gave us a really beautiful picture of of life and life as people experience it with ups and downs and pains and joys and and it's beautiful and it's it's terrible and it's human and and but what do you find hopeful on like a day-to-day -day basis like practically it's not going to be rain rain doesn't give you hope i'm <laughs> You're sure assuming that. i find hope every day uh, <laughs> oh. what are wh okay on, uh, on a well whatever yeah um i mean really the same things right because the bedrock of my faith, I believe like it's a fact, right? Like I believe God is with me. It's not a feeling. It's not to me um, a leap of faith. It's just something I believe is, right? Just like I believe the end is not the end. It's just an is. And so for me at the end of every day, right? Even if it's one of those days, it just kicks your ass that there are days like that, right? And it's raining and I'm mad and grumpy about it, you know? But like before I go to bed, I'm like, I can always find three things to be thankful for. Like there's always three things. And I, sometimes it's easy. Sometimes it's a reach, right? But I'm like, there are always, I can find three things. And inevitably one of them has to do with um, either God's presence in me or in ancestors, right? And that this is part of what, 
lets me have or fuels the life that I have. And so that gives me hope. That's good. Yes. Well, thank you so much for your time, for your writing. I'm going to make sure I go um, and read more. Yes. Um, But we do highly recommend this book to people who are listening and will put easy ways to find it and such. Um, And we look forward to seeing you hopefully in Vancouver sometime. We'll see if we can go for a bike ride. (laughs) Hopefully not a bike ride in the rain. Not in the rain. Um, And, you know, if you want to learn more about process theology, I do offer classes on that. And you can find that at process theology 101. So you can do that like online. Perfect. Okay. So process theology, Theology say it again. 101.com. Process theology 101.com. Awesome. Dr. Coleman, Monica, thank you so much for your time. Um, This has been fantastic and so much to go with and and, uh, look forward to um, speaking with you again in the future. Thanks so much. Thank you. Rector's Cupboard releases a new episode every other Friday. The podcast is a production of Reflector Project. Hosts are Todd Weeb and Allison Williams. Cupboard master for tastings and locations is Ken Bell. Production and social media by Amanda Minor. For past episodes and other content, visit rectorscupboard.ca. Thanks for listening.